This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Here you go. Here you go. Can you see what I'm doing as I play the world's smallest, teeniest, tiniest violin? And I'm playing it for the Golden State Warriors. Oh, they have the worst point differential of any defending champion to start a season. Minus 47 points over two games. Oh, Draymond Green says we've really sucked. Well, guess what, Warriors? You've been in the game five straight years, three titles, five finals, and now you lost Durant. Thompson's out for the year, and yet you're wondering why you stink. You got a bunch of role players trying to be stars. Steph Curry cannot do it alone. He's not going to be able to do it alone. So from where I'm standing, the Warriors are not making the playoffs. Here I go with the violin. I was definitely not doing anything other than watching World Series last night. How could you? Super excited to watch Garrett Cole against Max Scherzer. Yeah, that's the game, right? Cole against Scherzer. Everything's fine. But I'm not a team president anymore. I'm not on the inside. I don't have the scoop. And the scoop is that Scherzer was not pitching. And it was released at about 4 to 4.30 Eastern time before an 8 o'clock game. Well, that's not exactly how it happened. The Nationals knew at least 24 hours prior to that that Scherzer wasn't going to pitch. And what I found interesting, it's gamesmanship. Of course, you're not going to tell the Astros that Scherzer's not playing. You don't want to give them a chance to try to prepare to face Joe Ross. You don't want to get your players too despondent that they're not going to have Scherzer behind them. But guess what? The players knew too. It didn't work. So let me tell you how that happens. Scherzer reports to the training room what you what you tell your players, and many of them will listen. Some of them hide it. But generally, when you wake up feeling stiff or something hurts, you're supposed to, the rule is, come into this ballpark. See the trainer. Even if you're sick, go to the trainer. We log it in one set of logbooks. Thank you, San Diego, who has two sets of medical books and got fined for it, of course. But we log it, and then we give you medicine, and we send you home. So the rule is no matter what's happening, get yourself to the ballpark. So Scherzer gets himself to the park on Saturday and is having neck and back spasms. He called them trapezoid spasms. But for a pitcher, neck, trap, shoulder, back, any sort of spasm, and that's it. That, to me, in my history, has always been two to three days at a minimum. We would try injections, uh, anti-inflammatories, massage, heat, cold, anything to try to get rid of the spasm or to make it go away faster. But the fact is, they knew the minute he had the spasm, you know what it's like? 
Do you ever have a, uh, a foot cramp or a calf cramp in the middle of the night where your foot locks up or your calf tightens so much that it's hard as a rock and it wakes you from a sleep or you simply can't move your leg or your foot and your toes are scrunched together and then you try to breathe through it but you can't and then it sort of goes away but there's that residual pain? Well, that's the type of spasm that I'm talking about and when that happens in your shoulder or your neck, the type of pain, it's hard enough for me to get out of bed and get in the shower to say nothing of having to pitch a Major League Baseball game. Max Scherzer then claims that he couldn't even get dressed. He needed his wife to help him get dressed. So leaving aside any of the significance of how long the spasm's gonna last, the reality is he wasn't pitching yesterday way before it was announced. And there is nothing wrong from a gambling standpoint. Think about what happened. A line was set for Cole versus Scherzer. But then when Scherzer scratched, basically they took the game off the board and they're making it as though it's a no game because the people who had Houston, let's say at minus 140, uh, it may, may have even been a little less actually with Cole Scherzer in Washington. All of a sudden that's going to go to probably minus 220, minus 230, which it should go when you've got Cole going against Joe Ross. So the impact of the game, not just on gambling, but the impact was really on the entire World Series because that game was lost before it even began. The only thing that worried me was the Astros being overconfident and thinking to themselves, hey, without Scherzer going, we've got this in the bag. But one thing the Astros are very good at, and it's not public relations, and it's not human-to-human relations, what they're really good at is taking care of their players, and they know and they meet with their players and say, listen, they have a hitters meeting before the game and they're going over Joe Ross. They're not talking about the fact that Joe Ross is not Scherzer. They're saying Joe Ross is 94, 96, hard slider, and you're gonna have a hard time with him, so you better get in the box and focus. The Astros, to me, did not look like they were taking this game for granted, whereas the Nationals looked sunk. When you think that your ace is going and you're in a 2-2 series, you've lost two in a row at home and you've got Max Scherzer going, even though you've got to face Cole, the view is that you're gonna get that game. And when the players find out it's Joe Ross and not Max Scherzer, that's when, it, it's sort of like the air coming out of the room. I, I remember announcing in, uh, injuries before in a clubhouse. It just feels badly. It, the whole team, the whole aura just changes and that's what happened. But the question that's been asked of me constantly yesterday and today, what changed? How is it possible that all of a sudden the Astros won three in a row? in Washington. Well, a couple of things changed that are interesting to note. Number one, the Astros started hitting with runners in scoring position, and their pitching, they gave up one run per game in three straight games, outscored them 19 to three over those three games. Led by Altuve, who was on base, basically the last 25 games he's been on base, which is the third longest postseason streak. They've got Correa hitting home runs, Springer hitting home runs, Brantley hitting well, everyone in that lineup up and down, and they finally decided to play Alvarez, their DH, in the outfield. One of the reasons why I want to get rid of the DH in the American League or get rid of or add the DH to the National League is I want the, the basically continuity in baseball. I personally would like to get rid of the DH, but the union would never allow it because the DH is a higher paid position than the 25th man would be if we just got rid of the DH and had pitchers hit. So the union to the union, it's all about money. To me, it's about money and also about how the game flows, which is also about money. So that whole game five was just the Astros from the beginning, and they're gonna finish what they started. We're gonna talk about game six tomorrow. 
It's coming up. Will this series go seven? Tomorrow is Strasburg against, uh, uh, against Justin Verlander. Justin Verlander trying to reverse his World Series statistics and how ineffective he's been. But the story for me has been solely about how a team like the Astros comes back the way they did and what do you do if you're the Nationals when you get on that plane? For me, leaving home is the best thing that could have happened to the Nationals. And frankly, not sweeping the Astros in the first two games would have been better because they came home really cocky. They've now been put in their place and now they go back to Houston sort of again as the underdog. And I think they played better from that position in the first two games. I had a lot of fun watching the New England Patriots play in the rain. There's something about football in the rain that I love. I love that it's a sport that doesn't get rained out. And for some reason, Bill Belichick, when it's raining or snowing or cold, he sort of always looks like your grumpy grandfather who can't believe he's outside but wants to toughen it out and thinks that everyone who's inside by the heater drinking hot chocolate or just a bunch of pansies. That's how I view Bill Belichick. And he is a... Uh, 300-game winner. Now, in baseball, when you win 300 games as a pitcher, that is pretty much automatic entrance into the Hall of Fame. In football, when you're a coach and you win 300 games, it's staggering. He is now third to Don Shula and to George Hallis in all-time wins. But what is more impressive and why Bill Belichick, for me, is the greatest coach of all time, he's done this in 25 years. Who had the over-under if I said Belichick's been coaching for 23 years? I went under. I forgot about the first five years with the Browns. He's had 20 years with the Patriots. That's 25 years of coaching. He's only had five losing seasons, four of which were with the Browns, one of which was his first season with the Patriots. And we talk about what a great coach he's been and how his relationship with Bob Kraft, his owner, is this miraculous, spectacular relationship. Well, the reason Bill Belichick hasn't been fired is that he doesn't lose. Believe me, if the Patriots went back to what they were under Steve Grogan, when I would put the uh, paper bag over my face and poke out my eyes so I could see, those were that was before the New Orleans Aints. The Patriots were putting bags over their heads because they were so bad back in the day. And when you think about it, you realize that Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft, and Tom Brady are responsible for one of the great turnarounds and longest-running dynasties, really, that I've seen in the history of sport, rivaling the Boston Celtics of the early days, the New York Yankees of the 20s and 30s. Belichick deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He will be in the Hall of Fame. The question is, how will the Patriots exit from Belichick and Brady? And the answer will be very simple. As soon as they start losing, that will be the end of Brady, and that will be the end of Belichick. But for now, Robert Kraft gave the game ball to Bill Belichick, and all I wanted him to say was a simple word. Bill Belichick, thank you. Thank you for the rings. Thank you for the winning, and we'll see you next year. Speaking of winning, uh, I watched Tiger Woods win in Japan. I love the golf at night because it's sort of, it, it could be like a flip to, and I love that it's during the day, and you never really know what day it is, and I love going to Japan, and, and uh, but Tiger Woods went there to win a tournament, and he did. He won his 82nd PGA tournament, which ties him with Sam Snead for the most PGA wins of all time. So the question that I have when I think about Tiger Woods is very simple. Is he going to start getting his money back? Is he going to start getting all the sponsorships that he lost during Ambient Gate and during driving, falling asleep at the wheel gate, during arrest gate, and during what did, what happened? Like the golf club hit the back of his car as he pulled out of his car on Ambient. 
All of that sort of crushed his legacy. And what about will it change steroid gate? The fact that he's broken down so much and had so many injuries, that had nothing to do with the waitresses at Denny's. That had to do with what he was putting into his body. So the question is, has Tiger Woods put himself in a position where his legacy can change and therefore start getting his sponsorships back and becoming really what he was? To remind people, Tiger Woods was untouchable. We're talking about an athlete who we started watching as a child who started getting sponsorships basically before his bar mitzvah. That's how close he was when he was young to being the greatest of all time. It's almost the way Serena and Venus Williams' father said these are going to be the greatest two female tennis players ever. And this is when they were little girls. That's basically what we were told about Tiger Woods from his dad. And it worked. And he was. He was on top of the world. He couldn't lose. He had 15 major championships, 14 before all of his issues and one since when he got the green jacket back in the Masters. But what's so funny is that it is all about money, right? So Tiger Woods has is making hundreds of millions of dollars in sponsorships. He's got deals with Nike. Basically, is there a burp button or just a cough button? Well, for those of you who just heard, I reached for the cough button thinking that maybe it could be a burp button, but it wasn't. So Tiger Woods has all of these sponsorship deals and then they disappeared. Because it turns out that unless you are like in the highest office in the land, you have a real opportunity to lose sponsorships due to depravity. And so people walked away from Tiger Woods like it was nothing. And for me, I didn't really understand what the story was. He, you sponsor him for one reason, because you believe that people will buy your product if you associate your product with Tiger Woods. Well, did Tiger Woods' popularity decrease when he stopped winning? Did it decrease because of his injuries? Did it decrease because he went through a divorce? It decreased for one reason only, in my opinion, because it was a self-perpetuating and a prophecy. Here's what happens. When you have a problem as an athlete and you're worried about your legacy, you go into crisis PR and you make a decision, what are you gonna do? Do you save your family? Do you save your legacy? Do you save your body? What Tiger Woods did is he just, he went into basically hibernation. So he was no longer willing to pitch anything. He didn't go meet with his sponsors to try to save that money. He just basically packed up his toys and went home. My criticism back then was, get out in front of this story. Explain exactly what's wrong and what's happening. Don't let other people talk for you. And what Tiger did was, and he couldn't let his game talk for him because he wasn't playing, and he couldn't let a PR person talk to him because they didn't know what to say, and his sponsors couldn't talk for him because they all walked away. And in, when there's a void of conversation, it's gonna get filled. And it's gonna get filled by haters. It's gonna get filled by people who don't know the difference between what's real and what's not. Which is why I've always encouraged to people who are in the public eye, when there is a public PR crisis, stand up, put on your shield, and take it like a man or a woman. Don't deny it, don't explain it, just acknowledge it and move along. And Tiger chose not to do that. So now, as time passes, what got Tiger back? He won another tournament. Years passed from his losing, from his body breaking down, which he continued to do, that's why he missed so much time. His family situation got resolved and they could once again show pictures on the green of his kids cheering him on. So everything sort of got back together. The question is, does the money follow? So we're gonna find out 
whether money follows winning or whether it follows Tiger. Now that he's tied with Snead with 82, his next tournament's going for 83. He's got 15 majors. Catching Jack Nicholas was a guarantee back in the day. Jack Nicholas has 18. It wasn't even a question. When, when you go to Vegas and you're looking at the odds of Tiger Woods being the all-time majors champion, you were barely getting three to one back when he had 14 because he just, he was winning them every year at least one. So you knew it was not an issue. Now it is a very serious long shot. Frankly, my position is he has no chance to catch Jack Nicholson and Jack, Jack Nicholson. Thank you. I'm a movie guy. No way to catch Jack Nicholas. And I'm actually happy about it. And a little known fact about Jack Nicholas, he is too. There's a player who wasn't happy after uh, the NFL games yesterday, and it drove me absolutely insane to the point of anger, actually. I get that Joe Flacco has a Super Bowl ring. I get that he signed a big contract, free agent contract. And I get these on a team right now that's going nowhere. Absolutely, they stink. And I get that they lost a game to the Colts who lost Andrew Luck, who everyone assumed. I mean, frankly, right here at CBS, we had people betting immediately the under on the Colts the minute Andrew Luck went out, right? Uh -huh. Put a hook in your mouth because you've been totally hooked. They're going to go over, of course. But why would Flacco do what he did? He's, <coughs> he stood up post-game and he spoke to the media about a play call that he did not agree with. Let's listen to exactly the words he said and then talk about them. We're now a two and six football team and we're like afraid to go for it in a two minute drill. You know, like who cares if you give the ball back to the guys with a minute and 40 seconds left? They obviously got the field goal anyway. And once again, we're a two and six football team and it just feels like we're kind of afraid to lose a game. You're not afraid to lose a game, Joe. You're two and six. You know how to lose games really well. And by the way, you're now injured. It was announced because of a herniated disc in your neck. Your neck was moving pretty good at that press conference. And you're calling out as the leader of your team, the highest paid player on your team. And you're calling out your offensive coach and your head coach. Explain to me why you don't go privately to the coaches and then come out with a united front. Here's another way that I would have done that press conference. That was a very tough loss. I was very disappointed with how our team executed the play that was called. I was surprised that we were unable to get the first down. I was surprised that our defense was not able to hold and that we were not able to beat the Colts. When the game ended, I had an opportunity to speak to our coach and we have gone through the plays and the playbooks and we really are gonna try to be more aggressive because we all acknowledge the season's not going as it should be going and at two and six, it's our goal to improve and to improve I think, and we all think, that we should be more aggressive. And the entire team is excited to be that way. Thank you all. That's what a professional does. That's not what Joe Flacco did. That's not being professional, Joe. Why don't you take a look at another quarterback who absolutely did what you're supposed to do after a game, and I'm talking about Mitch Trubisky of the Chicago Bears, who completely backed up his coach, Matt Nagy, who was completely wrong to do what he did. I spent... 20 minutes debating with Coca about the play at the end of the Bears game, and I'm so furious that I'm ignoring the entire rundown of this show because I want to present this to everyone listening to this show. The Chicago Bears had an opportunity to kick a 41-yard field goal to win a football game. 
Remember, winning a football game is like winning 10 baseball games in a season. When you lose a game in football, it's like losing 10 in a row. But when you win a game, it's winning 10 in a row. So Matt Nagy, the coach of the Bears, we're talking about the Bears who doinked, triple doinked a field goal last year in a critical game. I believe it was a playoff game. Coca, was it a playoff game? It was a double doink, not a triple. And was it a playoff game or not? It was a playoff game double doink where the entire offseason there have been major issues about kicking. They, they had kickers tryouts. They bring in a kicker. They're struggling. Granted, 41-yard field goal to win a game. To win a game. What did they do with about 25 seconds left? They take a knee. They take a knee to make sure that they're in position to kick the game-winning field goal. Before I tell you what happened, this is not a recap show. They missed the field goal. Let's talk about what should have happened. Matt Nagy claims in his press conference after the game, he said 1,000 times in a row I would do the same thing. I can't risk a fumble. I can't risk a bad handoff. I can't risk losing three yards. Well, what about the reward of getting three yards? What about making a shot at the end zone? He claims a thousand times out of a thousand, he does exactly what he did yesterday's game. Except our crack research team discovered that last year, given that exact scenario, he took a shot at the end zone. Which means it's not every time. It's not a no-brainer. So why exactly, if you're Matt Nagy, do you say those things when you know we're going to check them? But the quarterback took the high road. The quarterback backed up his coach and said, I play for the Chicago Bears. We made an organizational decision. The play was brought into me from the sideline, and I took a knee, and unfortunately, we lost the game. That's being a professional, Joe Flacco. Take a look at the Bears. He's a lot poorer than you, but maybe not for long, but way more professional. Mitch Trubisky, I compliment you on how to handle a coach and how to handle the press, Joe Flacco. You got a lot of work to do, but it seems with your herniated disc, you will have an opportunity to maybe figure out what you did wrong and do it better. Well, there is somebody who didn't figure out how to do anything right and is not doing better. And uh, it's amazing how much we're talking about the Astros and how much we're talking about uh, really everything they've done wrong. Because they're up three games to two, and they should find a way, I think, to have much better vibes around them. Remember off the field? Let me give you a quick recap. They had to fire their assistant GM during the last off day of the World Series because of what he did in the clinching game of the League Championship Series. Basically called out to a woman reporter that he was very thankful that they had a domestic abuser and a violator of the domestic abuse policy on their team. I'm talking about the closer, Roberto Osuna. This became quite a big story because the writer, Stephanie Epstein from Sports Illustrated, claimed that she heard... Brandon Brandon Taubman say this. The Astros released a statement saying, he never said it, you are irresponsible. To the Sports Illustrated writer. They were then forced to apologize, except they didn't apologize the right way. They sent their GM in front of the media, Jeff Lunau, who put him in front of a computer screen, a number one World Series winner. Put him in front of a camera, and he's as comfortable as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs, which means not very comfortable at all. 
So then MLB calls and says, Jim Crane, you got to send a letter to this woman. You have to apologize. What they should have realized, but in baseball, they're a little older and a little archaic. We know the average demographic, dem, demographic of baseball makes me look young. Here's the letter. To Stephanie Epstein. I don't know what form that is. I don't think that's their stationery. Where's the World Series Championship of 2017? Date of October 26th. Stephanie. Well, you generally write, Dear Ms. Epstein. That would be the way to professionally do a letter. On behalf of the entire Astros organization, I want to personally apologize for the statement we issued on Monday, October 21st. You have to put a year. He didn't put 2019. We were wrong, and I am sorry that we initially questioned your professionalism. Well, they didn't just question her professionalism, Jim. You know, you questioned the veracity of what she heard. And on top of that, it wasn't the professionalism. It was downplaying the entire domestic violence angle of this issue. We retract that statement, and I assure you that the Houston Astros will learn from this experience. Sincere regards, Jim Crane, owner and chairman, Houston Astros. It's the most pathetic letter I've ever read. There is zero excuse that this is the letter that got approved by Jim Crane, that was written by Jim Crane, that was sent by Jim Crane. This is the owner of a major league baseball team. There's only 30 of them. This is a situation that has brought a black cloud over the World Series, over your team, over your organization, that is not going to go away. You are going to win a ring in the next three days, and it will be overshadowed by the fact that your organization is full of misogynists and people who are afraid to tell the truth, and furthermore, people who don't recognize how to say they're sorry. This letter, the form is wrong. The stationery is wrong. Sincere regards? There's nothing sincere about the letter. How about warmest regards? How about an offer to spend time around the Astros organization, to be a part of the solution? If I were writing a letter, it would be much more than two sentences or three sentences. It would be an involvement of her in terms of training. I want you to help our team be better. Instead, it says, I assure you that the Astros will learn from this experience. What exactly are they learning? What have they learned? They're so cocky there in Houston, they don't learn a thing. And you want to know why I get worked up about it? Because I love the game. And the Astros should be the best story in baseball this year. And instead, it's become the worst story. And there's no end in sight. And every time I think it's going to get better, every time I think there's a chance, a little tiny chance that we're going to talk baseball, this happens. Jim Crane sends a letter and wonders how it gets posted. Did he think that this wasn't going to go public? You think Stephanie cares less about the Astros? Of course she's going to post this letter, and of course she should post this letter. It's a disgrace. Well, the Pirates finally got their act together. I just can't figure out what order they're doing stuff. First, they fired their manager, Clint Hurdle. Then they fired their president, Frank Coonley. I went on a Pirates radio station, a Pittsburgh radio station, and did an interview. I love doing interviews in different parts of the country and Canada, where I can talk about specific teams and get into a lot of detail. And I said, there's no way that Neil Huntington's getting fired. There's absolutely no chance. And why did I say that? Because if you're going to fire the GM, you do it immediately after the season. There's nothing that changes from day one of the offseason to day 22 of the offseason. But the Pirates decided to first fire the manager, 
then fired their team president, and then today they fired their general manager, Neil Huntington. Our nickname for Neil Huntington, am I allowed to say it? Um, it was a, uh, we would, I would call him, I would call him Pump Fake. Pump Fake. Why Pump Fake? That was our nickname for you, Neil. Because every time we thought we'd had a trade with you, it would sort of disappear. Like we're about to do a trade, and then no trade. Anyway, you had a good run, but my question is, why were you fired today, Neil? And the answer was given by the owner, Bob Nutting. Bob Nutting is a man who has, uh, he really does want to win, frustrated that he hasn't won. He's got a beautiful stadium, but he said the wrong thing. He hired an executive uh, who ran the Penguins for 10 years and then was with the Islanders, and he actually said, we needed a new president in order to choose a new general manager. Well, that's so wrong on three levels. Number one, you still could have fired the GM after the season and then hired the president first and then hired the GM and then hired the manager. That doesn't answer why you chose to fire the GM so late. And then Bob Nutting said, the owner of the Pirates, his, his something to the effect of that, well, he wanted the, the new president to have an opportunity to have a clean slate, to bring in his own GM. I'm sorry, is he bringing in Denise Potvan? or Bobby Orr, or Mario Lemieux? Bobby Nystrom? Mike Boston. Hold on, I'm guessing. No, none of those. He's gotta hire a baseball guy. That would be like me taking a job with the Islanders right now and being solely in charge of the search for a GM. I can interview anybody, but I'm gonna need help. And you think that the owner, Bob Nutting, is not involved in the hiring of a general manager? It's laughable. But what Bob Nutting is trying to do, and it makes me smile, he is trying very hard to step away from responsibility because he's getting hammered in Pittsburgh, absolutely obliterated. And his team president, who's supposed to service his shield, the way I always did in my 18 years, I was the shield. I didn't always used to be 5'5". I started in baseball at 6'1". But what happens when you're the human shield? You get shorter by an inch almost every season. But Bob Nutting is trying to step back and put it all on the president to get a GM. Not gonna happen. And then they interviewed all these managers, and now the manager process is completely stagnant. They've stopped it. And they're gonna get back to it once they have a GM. Well, here's a little nugget, Bob, nutting. The GM meetings are in about 15 days, the first week of November, 10 days. You really are gonna want an actual GM. Although, frankly, when you had an actual GM, the moves were so bad that Maybe not having a GM gives the Pirates the best chance to win a game. Not the only firing. Another firing today. Fire alert, fire alert. Wrong guy fired alert. That's gonna be a new segment, I think, on the show. The wrong guy fired alert. And the reason I was the king of that, we always fired the wrong guy. Because we had to blame someone. I'm never gonna blame myself. I'm never gonna fire myself. Wrong guy fire alert. Yankees fire pitching coach Larry Rothschild. Yes, Yankee fans, can you explain to me why your pitching coach, longtime pitching coach, is taking the blame because your general manager chose to trade for Edwin Encarnacion and not a starting pitcher at the deadline, or chose to not get Verlander when he could have, or Cole when he could have, or Wheeler when he could have, even Jason Vargas when he could have. And now you're firing the pitching coach? Just now you've decided? Well, it's funny because Brian Cashman gave a press conference at the end of the season where he actually didn't blame the starting pitching and didn't say he was upset about anything other than 
situational hitting. Can you? That's what Brian Cashman said. He said, very disappointing playoffs because we had some pretty bad situational hitting. Well, that's true. Then did you fire your hitting coach or your assistant hitting coach or your manager? How come you need a new voice and pitching coach? Will a new voice make CC Sabathia's knee better? He's off the team. Will it make Big Maple, James Paxton? Will it make him a number one? Will it make Tanaka's ulnar collateral ligament more intact? Listen, Larry Rothschild was an outstanding pitching coach. What I'm taking issue here with is how the announcement was made, the timing, and why. When you want to fire coaches, you do it right after the season. There is no reason because it stops him and hurts him from getting another job. It's still possible he's going to get another job, but obviously there's more teams. Like the Angels went with Mickey Calloway, the fired Mets manager, who's now the pitching coach of the Angels. Why not give your coaches an opportunity to get other jobs in other organizations? What epiphany are you having from a business or on-field standpoint where you make a change during the World Series in your coaching staff? It's disappointing but typical of the Yankees in that they are trying to blame anything other than the fact that they have made bad signings and they're coming off the worst decade since the 1910s in their franchise history. Good luck finding a job, Larry. More off-field news in baseball. So much baseball. I I, I just love covering it all. And uh, this is a, an interesting topic, and it's it's about money, shockingly. And it's about what my goal is as team president. It's to give players as little money as possible. That's like page two in the president's handbook. Get as much money as you can from the fans and give as little money as you can to the players so you can give as much money as you can to the owner. That's the object of the game. If you can win a ring while you're doing it and win some games, that's a positive. So what's the one way in the rules that you can give as little money to players as possible? Well, it's called service time manipulation. Service time manipulation is not a board game. It's not a game played on Saturday nights in dark corners. It's actually a game of how to control when players can start making more money. The way it works in baseball is you have a player for six years. The first three years, you get to choose their salary. The second three years, an arbitrator chooses the salary. And after six years, the player's a free agent and the market chooses the player's salary. The only rules for the first three years are you have to pay the player the minimum salary according to the collective bargaining agreement. When I got in the game, the minimum salary was $125,000, let's say. It's now up to $600,000. So everyone who is a, 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 a rookie, a zero-plus player, which means they've been in the big leagues for zero days, when you put on a big league uniform, you start getting paid at the rate of $600,000 a year. The way they do that is very simple math. It's $600,000 divided by the number of games, the number of days in the season, which is the number of games plus off days, and that is what you make per day. So we're trying to make it so we get the player, not just to make as little money, but also to not be a free agent for as long as possible. So what the Cubs did with Chris Bryant was both legal and correct. In 2015, Chris Bryant started the season in the minor leagues in AAA. Now, the way the collective bargaining agreement works is that you're not allowed to go public and say that you are putting a player in the minor leagues in order to manipulate their service time. 
Well, I don't work for a team anymore, so I can go public and tell you that's the only reason we send players down. We always say, hey, he's got to work a little bit on his mechanics. Hey, he's got to work on his defense. They told Chris Bryant he's got to work on his defense. We basically carry a list in our pocket of the four acceptable excuses that we can use to send players to the minor leagues, and you'll notice around baseball, it's always the same. As a matter of fact, when Vladimir Guerrero was sent down by the Blue Jays to start the season, it was to work on his defense. It's page two of the playbook. So, Chris Bryant gets sent down to work on his defense in the start of 2015, and once you know it, on April 17th, Chris Bryant ends up on the Cubs. Whether it was because the third baseman at the time, Mike Oltz, got injured, whether it was because there was a necessity, or whether it was because he was the best player in spring training that year, it doesn't matter. What matters is by bringing him up on that day in April, they saved themselves a full year, meaning Chris Bryant would have been a free agent after 2020 if he had started the season in 2015. But by coming up April 17th, Chris Bryant will not be a free agent until after the 2021 season. Now, I've had an owner tell me, I want the best players on my team. Give me Pete Alonso. Give me Fernando Tatis right now. Pete Alonso is going to win the Rookie of the Year for the Mets, and the Mets are watching games played in October and trying to hire a manager. Fernando Tatis starts the season in San Diego. They lose 90 games, finish in last place, and they stink. But the owner says, we, we're going to win. Let's do this. It's the greatest thing we could ever do. And as the team president, I say, but listen, you may not be thinking of this now, but 2020 is right around the corner. And wouldn't you know it, here we are. If the Cubs had not been so smart, they would have lost Bryant after this year, this coming season, 2020. So this is a major issue for players, and Chris Bryant is at the forefront of it because Chris Bryant has been very vocal. He's actually getting himself involved in the union because he so badly wants to change the system. Well, Chris, I have a great way to change the system. I'm happy to make all players free agents every single year. Forget arbitration. We'll get rid of it. That was your idea, Chris. The players wanted arbitration. Get rid of it. You want higher minimum salary? Forget the minimum salary. Let's make everyone a free agent every single year. You want to see what it's like to be on the sideline and not get paid? That's what happens when you don't perform. Let's make every player a free agent every year. No long-term deals. No guaranteed deals. All you got to do is play well and you'll get paid. I'll put a salary floor in for every team. No problem. I just don't want to sign long-term deals and get completely screwed every single time when a player stops performing or a player tests positive for steroids and I still have to pay him his guaranteed contract when he stinks after that. So Chris, you take that grievance in, whether you win or lose that grievance, which you should 100% lose because you had to work on your defense. <laughs> no, you didn't, Chris. But it's still legal. You got to close the loophole going forward. So this grievance is a loss for Chris Bryant. There could be a settlement even after the hearing. And a settlement would basically consist of them agreeing to pay him a certain amount of money. They're never going to give him his free agency a year early. That would be a, That would change the entire system. There could be some settlement that involves giving him some amount of damages. But from Major League Baseball standpoint, remember what their goal is from the owners. Keep players with a team for longer, paying them as little as possible. And from the player's side, they want to become free 
as quickly as possible to make as much money as they can in guaranteed contracts. It's going to be a very interesting offseason as the union and the league try to work on a new collective bargaining agreement. I took a break yesterday to revisit an old friend, and her name is Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Dr. Ruth Westheimer, if you've never heard of her, is the leader in the free world, a sexual therapist. She is a four foot seven firecracker of a woman who I called my whole life until I saw this movie, A Holocaust Survivor. She refers to herself as a Holocaust orphan. What happened was she was taken away from her family in Frankfurt, Germany during World War II, and she was put in an orphanage where she heard from her parents every single day by letter until she stopped hearing from her parents. Her parents had been swept up by the Germans and killed during the Holocaust. Dr. Ruth then moved on after the war to France and eventually to Israel and eventually to the United States. She got herself an education and became, you've heard of Dr. Phil, right? All these doctor first names, doctor first names. Well, Dr. Dre, I don't think he's a real doctor, but Dr. Dre was copying Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth was the original doctor. And this is a documentary about her life. And I've known Dr. Ruth for many years. When I was 12, her son, Joel Westheimer, uh, this was 1980, and her son came to Horace Mann, the high school I went to. He was in high school and I was in elementary school. And he came to teach us and introduce us to this new thing called a computer, which didn't exist at the time. So Joel Westheimer, who was Dr. Ruth Westheimer's son, taught us in sixth grade the beginning of computers. And then I would see Dr. Ruth around Horace Mann, and I've seen her in my professional career from time to time. And what I love about her is the fact that she took basically a life that could have been straight lemons and has made lemonade. And she has changed the lives and saved the lives of millions of people by making it okay to talk about sex, by taking the embarrassment out of it. She is not political at all. She is purposefully not political. Instead, she actually comes out saying, listen, don't ask me what is normal and what's not normal because her view is there's nothing that's normal. No one's normal. What feels right to you is what's right. And people have made that a political statement, but in fact, it's just a statement about life and love. This documentary was in the making. They followed her around for a full year. She's a dynamo. She's 90 years old. If you're looking for about an hour and 44 minutes of pleasure, pun intended, watch Ask Dr. Ruth. It's an important show to watch because it's both serious and sad. Well, it's, uh, it's back to my picks of the day. So the thing about picks is uh, <laughs> I love making them, and I actually think about them, and you wonder how it is that I could lose so many. Well, I don't lose that many, and I'm not going to lose the one tonight. There's something going on in the Steelers game. Dolphins are playing Monday night that needs to be told. We, we're all hearing about the Miami Dolphins, that they're not trying to tank on the field, only off the field. And the players are trying as hard as they can. Well, here's the problem with that. Uh, they're just bad. And no matter how hard they try, it doesn't really matter whether they're trying to tank or not trying to tank. It's like basically being undermanned. It's like fighting above class. Picture like in wrestling, me at 131 pounds would wrestle against someone who's 220 pounds. I may be technically a great wrestler, but I have no chance to win. To me, that's what the Dolphins feel like. They have no chance going into a game. Take the Steelers. They've underperformed this year. You're going to say 14. Ah, 14 is a little high. 
and I'm going to say it won't feel like 14. And you're going to say, but the Dolphins, they've been in it. They were in it into the first half. They've been in it the last two games. This is a game where lane 14, I was prepared. I make up the lines of each game that I'm looking at before I look. And I thought this line should have been 18 or higher. Anything below 18 was an absolute slam dunk for the Steelers. So my pick for sure is the Steelers. If you're looking for a bonus parlay, which isn't going to count toward my overall record of picks, I like the over in this game as well of 43. The other thing that you enjoy, that I enjoy doing, is the wait to see where I bring accountability back to sports, where if I'm going to say something, I'm going to mean it, and I'm going to keep track of it, and I'm going to come back to you when I'm right, and I'm going to come back to you when I'm wrong. Well, there's a stat that was brought to my attention yesterday, that since 1970, 35 teams have started the NFL season 7-0, and and wouldn't you know it, 35 teams have made the playoffs. So if you're San Francisco and New England, you can start making plans for January. And out of those 35 teams, 10 of those 35, or almost one in three, have actually won the Super Bowl. Well, my way to see is take the field. Go out there and get as much money as you can on anyone winning the Super Bowl other than the Niners or the Patriots. And you're going to get pretty good odds because right now the book says you're looking at the Niners against the Patriots playing in the Super Bowl, which means one of them will absolutely win. Well, you're not looking at the Super Bowl matchup. There is a lot of green left to cover, as we say, both in pool, golf, and running. So my way to see is neither San Francisco nor New England will win the Super Bowl this particular year. My final statement today will be about what I'm doing tonight, and I will be watching the Monday Night Football game. But I'm going to take the opportunity in between World Series to focus on something better and watch a movie that I cannot wait to review. Cannot wait. Check it out. Listen in tomorrow. And remember, throughout this entire process, it's just business. It's nothing personal. 